Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I'm here with another special guest, my buddy, film composer Bruce Bray, who is based out of Phoenix, Arizona. And you know, the funny thing is, well, not funny, but interesting, I guess, is that uh, film composition is one of those things that you really can do from anywhere now. Um, depending on the director and what they're willing to uh, do as far as uh, some of them really kind of want you to be in the room and do a spotting session in person. Uh, But I've done some over the net, uh, some you can do over Skype, you can do through Google Hangouts, where you can actually bring the movie online, you can talk, Uh, one person controls the movie so they can pause it, go back, whatever. Um, And you can do a spotting session that way now, whereas you didn't used to be able to do that, you used to have to be there and uh, watch the copy of the movie together. So uh, another way to do it is to uh, each have a copy of the movie and just kind of watch it in sync with each other. Uh, But that becomes challenging because each person is going to stop at a different different spot, roll it back to a a different spot. So not the most ideal, but it can be done that way. Um, You can do it over the phone, over audio, and just use that uh, following the movie. But really having the visual and the person is really the way to do it. So uh, we're hot on the heels of my last episode where I talked about my book, Becoming an Indie Film Composer. I could not believe I had not done a podcast on that already. Shame. But now it's done, huh? And uh, some of the things that I talk about in the book, especially with uh, regards to the 48-hour film challenge, we talk about a little bit in this podcast, get Bruce's opinion on some of that stuff. Uh, I I had already interviewed him when it dawned on me that I hadn't recorded the book podcast yet. So this is kind of a little bit backwards from my world. I talked to Bruce, then I did the podcast on the book. Now you're hearing Bruce's uh, podcast. So, uh, but lots of great stuff, lots of great information. Bruce is such a talented guy. Uh, I really like his approach. I really like the way that he looks at music and strives to do more to really bring the, uh, the listener or, you know, in the case of a film composer, I guess it would be viewer would be the proper term, but the way that he brings the viewer in to, uh, really experience the score, uh, along with the film. And, uh, we talk about some strategies for that. We also talk about how to get started, how to network, that sort of thing. And, um, it's a, it was a great conversation. This is the first time that Bruce and I have ever actually spoken, uh, which happens to be with some of my guests, like some of them I've met in person, which is great. Some of them I've known for years, some of them I've worked on projects with and others, uh, I've talked to over the internet for years, but we've never actually had uh, a direct conversation on the phone or in person. And Bruce is one of those people, you know, we chat up every once in a while cause we're both up late working. And, uh, sometimes, you know, you got to render a file or you're just like, you know what? I need to get away from this for a minute. One of us will reach out to the other one. Cause we're probably up and working on projects. So uh, so it works out well. But Bruce is a great guy. I was grateful to uh, get some time with him and be able to speak to him and to be able to bring that interview to you guys. So a couple house cleaning things. I don't know why they call it house cleaning, but that is the uh, the term. Uh, thank you guys all for those of you who have left reviews, who have written to me with uh, questions and, and uh, guest suggestions and all that sort of thing. Uh, very, very much appreciated. Thank you to Audionamics for supplying the instant dialogue cleaner, IDC that uh, helps me keep the audio of this podcast pristine. I have just recorded, uh, well, I'm going to do a series of videos on how I create and complete the podcast. And uh, they're going to be fairly short. I'm going to keep them as much as I can to the point um, of the software and the processes. Because, uh, you know, you guys all know me. I tend to get a little wordy when I'm left without supervision. 
So, uh, but for these, I really want to highlight the process and the, and the products. These are just the ways that I found to do things. I'm changing the process here and, and there. Uh, I've already redone my 2020 template like three times, but, uh, but every time it gets better and I'm trying different things and it looks like they're going to work and then I find a better way to do it. So I have to modify the template. But uh, but I'm bringing you those. The first one I've done is uh, I've done one on Audionamics IDC, the Instant Dialog Cleaner, which is the biggest staple uh, of what I use besides uh, Cakewalk, which is the program I use to record it. And uh, so that video, if it's not out already, will be coming out very shortly to my YouTube channel. So the link to the YouTube channel is in the show notes. Please look there and I will have a, uh, what do you call it, like a playlist of podcast uh I guess podcast training videos or something. I'll I'll figure out something nice to call it. So that'll be there and that'll be nice. And uh, for you guys that are curious about how I do the podcast, that'll be there. And I'll be bringing on some other videos as I have time. I'm also doing some walkthrough videos of uh, some software. I haven't uh, started on those yet, but that's next. I'm starting with the new Nada library from Eduardo Terralante over at Best Service. I love this library. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be a beta tester on it, and uh, and I've been working with it for a couple of months now, and it's absolutely fantastic, especially for those of us who write a lot of New Age or meditation music. And while it's geared to that, it could be used for anything, for film score, for documentaries, all kinds of stuff. Uh, you can head over to bestservice.com. I think it's bestservice.com and uh, check that out. Or you can just Google search uh, Nada and Best Service and you'll find it. Uh, absolutely great little program. Uh, I know that Dirk has done a walkthrough of it and I'll be doing one very shortly. Again, if it's not already up on the YouTube page by the time that this airs. So uh, that's it. Thank you guys, uh, all of you who have shared the podcast. Please remember to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, one star, five stars, whatever you feel is appropriate. I'd rather have you be honest than, uh, than just try and pump me up, even though it's always exciting to see a five, uh, five-star review. And uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please feel feel free to share it with those who you think might get a little something out of it. Uh, it's tough because I have such a wide variety of guests to say, I should share this with my musician friends or my actor friends or my director friends, because you never know who I'm going to get on the show. But that's probably, to me at least, part of what's cool about it is it's a different conversation every week. And uh, I have different people, different angles, different subjects. and uh, But it all relates to uh, learning about the business and learning about different facets of entertainment and all the things that go into a production so that you can really appreciate uh, everything that you see and not just the uh, show, the film, the performance, whatever it is. And uh, it, it really is amazing what it takes to make any project happen, whether it's a short film, whether it's one of these Cirque du Soleil shows, whether it's uh, you know a, a feature-length film, uh, any of these things. It's an incredible amount of work that goes into all of them. Most of that stuff, the uh, people that are outside of the business don't get to see. So it's good to get some insight on that and really learn to appreciate what it takes to uh, have art become a real thing and, uh, and be deliverable to you or, uh, or shown in a place where you can go check it out. And one of those people is Bruce Bray. Let's talk to Bruce. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as I say every week, I am very excited to bring on this week's guest or this week's one of this week's guests, depending on how the release schedule goes. I haven't figured that out yet, but a friend of mine who also has been working in uh, Phoenix as a film composer for a god awful long time, and he is very, very high in demand. So I was happy to steal some time with him. My buddy Bruce Bray. Bruce, how are you? 
I'm doing great, man. It's nice to be here tonight. Well, thanks a lot for for uh, spending some time with me. I know that you've just been working on project after project. I have. I, I you know, I kind of, as a matter of fact, I usually before I even finish one, I'm I'm kind of already starting another one and and getting that one going. So I'm usually working on multiple projects at once. Yeah, and and I love that. I mean, obviously, you're very good at what you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in such demand. I mean, they can they don't they're not stuck to Phoenix like they would be for an actor or a director. But uh, but you get like a good majority of the work down there in the indie world. I do get quite a bit of work. You know, I mean, I, I think for a while I was trying to uh, kind of seek out the work. And then once I work with a director, uh, it seems like, you know, you create that uh, language that you have between each other because that takes a little bit of time. And once you establish that, then once that director is ready to make another film, I mean, most of the time I wind up doing the next film with them as well. Well, that's part of it. I mean, building a good team of people that uh, not only are competent enough to do the work, but people that you enjoy working with, you've built a good relationship, you know how to communicate with each other. Why would you go anywhere else once you've established that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, I, I think it's unique, as you know, um, once when you work with a director, I mean, I think as a composer, we're one of those post people that you wind up working one on one and it's a little different. You know, when when they're making a film, you have a whole crew of people and you have 30 or 50 or 100 people or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be, all on set doing things. And then the director is, you know, working with all of those people. And, and it's more of a, I want to say more, I, I guess, a public kind of setting. But when you work with a director on a film, it becomes you have a much more of an intimate relationship with that individual because I mean, you know, music is such a large part of film and, you know, there's so many different ways that you can go with music. And so it's important that you establish that intimate friendship or relationship that you have with that filmmaker so that you can help them to uh, kind of, you know, um, explain their vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's such an important conversation because a lot of times the directors won't know how to speak to a composer musically and a musician won't know how to speak to a director in a film sense. So it's really, you know, for me, I stopped talking about instrumentation and themes and I just started talking about emotions with the director. You know, what do you want the, to, the audience to feel when they see this scene more so than, you know, do you want a trumpet here? Are you looking for something that strings, you know? Uh, how do you approach the the first film that you do with a director? I would say uh, what you just said is is pretty much uh, how that works. I you know if I can, um, I like to really spot the film with a director. You know where you sit down and take the time to you know make notes and and you know there's so many different things to talk about and that is is where we can put music where maybe we shouldn't have music. Um, you know, what, what you're trying to accomplish, uh, with each scene, uh, whose point of view, you know, which character, I mean, a character's point of view, because that obviously tells you a lot, uh, because, you know, you're trying to think of, uh, which character in that particular scene that you're trying to express their point of view, a tempo, you know, what kind of tempo that they, I mean, tempo is big, even though I agree with you, I don't talk about instrumentation much. I do like to talk about tempo because, mm -hmm. You know, every scene has tempo and maybe the tempo that I'm thinking of might be different than what they're thinking of. 
And so, you know, all of a sudden we get into those discussions and, and that makes a, you know, that makes a big difference, but, but, but at the end of the scene, it's still, you know, what kind of uh, emotional landscape it is that the director is looking for in that particular scene. Well, and that's a great point that you bring up about the tempo, because every scene, you're right, it does have a pulse. It has a heartbeat to it. But maybe the heartbeat that you're seeing the film on, because maybe you're seeing like a slow anticipation build. And and in the director's mind, they're already three steps into that anticipation. So they're feeling it in a completely different rate. Um, That is very important to keep that uh, that conversation going. It is. And and also, you you know, and and once you establish, I mean, the other thing, too, is that, you know, also the styles that they have, because one, I don't know if you've run into this, but one of the things I've run into with directors is sometimes directors, you know, they became directors because of those wonderful movies that they saw when they were younger Mm -hmm. and and they get attached to the idea uh, of what those movies meant to them. And then the music that they heard then uh, kind of becomes prevalent in their mind. And so you, you almost have this, uh, you almost have this moment where you kind of have to talk to the director and sometimes you have to remind them that, you know, you want to do modern music. You don't want to make music that sounds like it's, you know, 30 or 40 years old or something. And so then you kind of also have that, that you, so sometimes, you know, you have to, kind of convince directors to do things. And then sometimes they have to convince you to do things, you know, it's just kind of the way that goes. Well, and there is certainly a certain element of, of compromise and knowing when to pick your battles. <laughs> you know, you, you, if you have something you feel very strongly about, you have to decide whether uh, it's, it's important enough to the film to potentially ruin that relationship uh, or, or if it's not, and it's better to save the relationship and, and just give in to what the director wants. It's a, it's a pretty interesting art, that negotiation in and of itself. It is. And, and then sometimes, you know, you'll have, but then sometimes, you know, you'll have like, um, like a thing happen that's almost automatic and you don't realize that makes it easy. Like, for example, I was working on this film, uh, called, uh, Planet George, which was a feature length comedy and the director, Carrie Frederick, she's um, she's a lot younger than I am. And when I went to spot the film with her, I noticed when I walked in, she had this um, poster of the Ramones on the wall. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, you know who the Ramones is? She goes, yeah, my mom and I, and we love punk rock. And I'd had this idea when I saw the film uh, before that maybe it could be, because I don't get to do many guitar-oriented tracks, you mm-hmm. know, film us. Uh, and, and I said, I think that perhaps you know, a, a good way to go on this would maybe be to bring some energy of some guitar oriented music. And she goes, you know, I agree. And I was thinking the same thing. And so then it kind of made that job a little bit easier because we were already thinking on the same wavelength, you know? Right. Yeah. That really does help. And it's good that you, you feel with the relationship that you have the ability to make those kind of suggestions on the fly and say, what if we took this approach? Because sometimes, yes, the director may have something in mind, but that doesn't mean that they aren't open to hearing something else. And, and you know what? And, and that's true. I, find, I actually find that most directors are, are, are very open. I think that the thing um, that's kind of hard in the beginning, I think, is kind of nailing the feel, you know, the feel that they want. That's really the hardest part. And then once you get that feel 
Kai, because that's what I, I try to develop something that's tonal, you know, mm-hmm. something that that expresses the tone and, and the tone that they're looking for. And I, I before I even want to compose a bunch of pieces, I try to just focus on maybe an idea or one scene or something that can express, you know, a lot of the instrumentation that I'm kind of feeling after talking to them. So I'll try to create something that's just that one. I, I don't go in and try to attack the whole film. Right. I just want to, I want to establish the tone mm-hmm. that the director's looking for. And then once I can get that established with them, then I feel a lot more comfortable about moving ahead, uh, moving ahead, sorry. And, you know, starting to get the ideas for some of those other scenes down. Well, that's a really good approach, though, because you don't want to write the whole score and then have the director go, well, I don't even like your main themes. You know, if you no, get some of that no. stuff out in the beginning and say, hey, this is the direction I'm feeling. What do you think? And then you can work on shaping that towards, you know, their feedback. But if you just start out writing the whole film and going, here you go. And that's just the worst approach you could take. It is. It is. And then the other side of the coin to that, too, as well. You know, I find one of the more difficult things to do is when they actually include a temp track. Because because the problem is, is they get married to that music and you can wind up having to get to a point where you go, look, I can't plagiarize this music because you you really fell in love with those tracks. And you, it's almost like you want me to duplicate those tracks because I'll get them. I'll get things that are really close. But, you know, temp tracks can be really challenging because I, I think that directors already have an idea of what they heard. It's almost like maybe if they give you a temp track and you could come back a year later and do the film, then maybe you would be okay. You know what I mean? Oh, I'd love that. But you're right. Because what happens is it's not just like they give you a song list or they give you a copy of the film with some music in it. Uh, It's that they're editing the film with that same music over and over and it becomes the soundtrack. So now nothing that you can do is going to match what has been burned into their brain as the soundtrack of the film. Yeah, yeah, it's really difficult. I mean, I, I find that temp tracks are, are real difficult, but then sometimes you get some projects and then it's like you have to have the temp track just because, you know, the ideas that you throw out there, the filmmakers just never happy with. And they're going, you know, I really just listen to the temp track and, and that's where I want to go. And so then, you know, then the challenge is, is trying to do something that, you know, sounds similar, but, you know, to try to, make your own spin on it and make it not sound exactly like the original music. Right. And, and the bigger questions too, cause you can go a lot deeper with that and say, well, what is it that you like about the temp track? Is it the tempo? Is it the instrumentation? Is it the emotion? Is it the drive? You know, it's, it's not just give me a song that I can uh, kind of replicate the feel of it's why are you picking that song? And maybe I can do something that's completely different, but gives you that same feel that works more cohesively with the rest of the score. Yeah. And, and I have actually, you know, you're right. And I've actually asked that question uh, a couple times. I did have uh, a few times I had that temp track and, you know, the answers that I got inevitably, you know, just led me back to the original song because, you know, they, sometimes they don't know. I mean, sometimes it's just a, it's just a gut feel that they have. Yeah. You know, they, they I think you're right. I think I, I had talked to a guy who did, uh, who was a really good filmmaker. And he had told me that when he actually made film, that while he was actually, I mean, like he would write the script and he would go out and he would actually start filming it. And while he was filming the, you know, his, his movie, 
he would actually be playing music that he thought was relative, like while the scene was actually going on, mm-hmm. you know, so that he could get an idea of how he thought that that would be. So he, he had an idea very early about how he thought, you know, the music would work, what it would sound like and, and that sort of thing, even before, even before the film was done being filmed. Oh, wow. I like, yeah. I like when they have an idea of what they want, but there's another problem with the temp track. And let's say that you're, you're working on the score and they add a scene in and they say, okay, I really like born to be wild. Like I really want a born to be wild thing here. And you go, okay, but this is an orchestral score and we're not in a bar. We're not driving in a car. We don't have anywhere where incidental music would apply. So now how am I going to work this in to an orchestral score and put this this drive and rock song in. How do you make that work? And that's another challenge with temp music because they don't have to follow any uh, flavor at all. They can just pick whatever songs and stick them in there. Yeah, that that's. I always, you know, I think there's for me there's only two kinds of soundtracks, and I try to work with directors on on one or two ideas, and that is either a uh, what you're talking where every single piece is where it's eclectic, like there is no two matching pieces because mm-hmm. otherwise exactly what you're talking about. If you're, if your whole entire, unless it's a, maybe unless it's a comedy, but otherwise if your whole entire film is orchestral and then you're looking for born to be wild to be put in there, then it, it kind of disrupts. I, I think they, it, it can make the audience kind of like feel disconnected from the film then. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's a byproduct of that. However, I mean, if all the pieces are different, you know, that's fine. Then that's fine. But that's that's something you got to figure out up front. But the other type of soundtrack, of course, my favorite kind of soundtrack is soundtrack that has glue, mm-hmm. you know, and you establish some glue between the pieces by finding some commonality, uh, whether it be through uh, motifs or melody or instrumentation, especially with the instrumentation trying to, you know, settle on that whole sonic bed that you want to deal with and then create that glue between scenes by sometimes using three or four notes that might be the same to display certain types of emotions or certain things. And then all of a sudden, I, <clears throat> I just think it works better for making the, the viewer feel connected to the film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm curious. I remember the first film that I worked on you know, because when you're thinking about becoming a film composer, you watch a film, you watch Jaws or Raiders of the Lost Ark or any of these classic John Williams films that we grew up on. And you go, oh, yeah, I think that'd be fun to do. And then the first time you get a film and there's no music in there, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, I've never seen a film presented in this way. And I'm responsible for all of that. That can be a pretty daunting task. Do you remember the first time that you worked on a film like that? You know, I, I can't remember my first film. I would have to go back and look. Um, but I do remember you're right early on where, um, I was struggling a little bit because, well, for one thing, you know, I, I had always wanted to do music on film, but I, I had always played in bands. Mm -hmm. And so it took me a real long time. I made a lot of mistakes before I realized that you got to really disconnect your idea of, of like, regular band music or just regular music from film music because the purpose is different, you know, and you got to really kind of disconnect your idea of how that works, you know, but, but the other problem I had was, 
you know, and kind of the same thing maybe directors have with watching film is that I remember the film scores, you know, that, you know, what it was psycho or, uh, you know, or what it was, uh, you know, uh, taxi driver or just a whole bunch of those old movies that I'd watched and the way that they sounded. And then I was also thinking about the way that modern film sounded and I was trying to kind of connect it to, and I didn't really do a very good job at it. So it was, a, it was a really, it was a little bit daunting from that. And, and I don't know about you, but one of the, you know, one of the things I struggled with as well was, uh, making too much music and making it too long. Yeah. So, you know, I, I thought, you know, I really, really made like I, I remember I had worked on this one film and my God, I made this piece of music. And, you know, it was probably I don't know, like maybe, you know, wound up being like four minutes long or something. And, and it probably could have been accomplished in maybe 45 seconds or a minute <laughs> or something, you know, for the right. scene. Yeah. You know, and so I think that that was really a struggle you know, as well for me, you know, that kind of, but then I said, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, you know how it goes, the longer you do it, the more of a feel you start to have for it, you know? Yeah. It, the thing is, is that when you're thinking about getting into that world and you listen to the scores, you, you go, yeah, I would make, I would have done that. Or I see why they did that. But then when you go to sit down to write, you haven't learned how to write for film music. And I think that's why a lot of people fail is that they're, if you're a songwriter, you're taking your songwriter mentality into it. Um, you haven't really learned to take feedback because no one's ever had to give you feedback on your music, which is a whole nother level. Uh, there's a lot of components to scoring films that I don't know about you, but when I started doing it, I didn't even think about. And then I had to learn those lessons very quickly. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that was a real... I mean, that was, I had probably spent, you know, the first two years just making mistakes more than anything else. I would say that the first two years were just, just full of, but I mean, I learned from them, which was good, you know? And, and of course the other side is, you know, because when you're dealing with, whether you're dealing with shorts or, or when you're dealing with indie films and their budgets are so low, you're not just a composer, you know, the other side of that equation that, you know, people like you and I had to really spend time on learning is the production side because mm -hmm. they don't have the money to, you don't get to go out and hire a bunch of musicians to actually play what it is that you scored. You have to create that. And then you have to create something that sounds, you know, aesthetically pleasing. And also in a case of orchestration, that sounds as real as you can possibly make it. And so that's a whole nother craft in and of itself and takes you know, I probably in the first, I don't know, three years at least, I probably spent just as much time learning how to work on instrumentation and, and the production side as I did the actual composing side. Oh, yeah. And you have to be the audio engineer. You have to be the mastering engineer. I've even dubbed uh, the films before where, you know, you take the uh, the music and the dialogue track and the effects tracks and you mix them all together for the film. Uh, you get called upon to do sound design and all kinds of things that really are beyond. But in indie film, you kind of expect that everybody has to jump in and do whatever they need to do. Yeah, I've actually been, you know, I've only actually lost two film opportunities because I don't I don't actually do sound editing and sound design. I mean, that's not I mean, I spend so much time. I mean, I work so hard on the soundtracks that I work on. And they take me so long. I mean, I, I can I could spend 
hours on seven seconds if something wasn't right. But, you know, I mean, it's to me, there's just not enough time for me to learn to do those other things because as I go, I mean, I'm still even now. I mean, I learn every film I work on. I learn, I learn something else, you know, and I learn, I learn something about the music and I learn something about the process and I inevitably learn something about myself. That's great. Even after all the work, I, I feel the same way. And I just hit uh, 1100 over 1100 pieces of music that I've written now. And I'm still everything that I work on because it's a new composition. It's a new angle, new blend of sounds. I'm still learning as a writer, but I think the one advantage that I had going into it was that I was a classical composer before I became a film composer. I'd already written several symphonies, uh, uh, some concertos, um, some piano pieces. And so I felt going into film, I had a real advantage that I think a lot of uh, people that are getting into it now don't. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think because I had always, I mean, I have a very eclectic taste of listening to music. So I had always really loved classical music, but I had never really played classical music. I mean, I had played a little, but, you know, not not professionally, but, mm -hmm. you know, just for myself. But, you know, in bands, I mean, mainly I'd played, you know, fusion style, rock style, metal style, whatever, you know, I mean, I was a guitar, I've been a guitar player since I was eight. And so everything that I did was kind of oriented towards guitar. And so when I started doing this, I had to, you know, I mean, I know where all the notes are on a piano. Mm -hmm. uh, I know where all the chords are. I know the scales. I, you know, I, I know all of that stuff, the modes and everything. I had to kind of sit down and reconstruct how I thought about music when I, you know, played the keyboard. And, and then as I started to think about each instrument, you know, I would go online and actually like, for example, like a cello go online and find out how a cello player, uh, actually approached playing their instruments. So that I knew that when I'm composing a piece that a cello player has to play or would play, then I don't want it to be something that's based off of a piano or guitar. Mm -hmm. You know, I want, I wanted to, that's part of the instrument sounding natural is to actually know how a player plays the instrument. And so, you know, so that took a lot. I mean, every, I mean, and I'm still learning some of that uh, when I approach a new instrument that I've never done before is to actually try to figure out how would the player go about playing that instrument. Right. And you can, you know, you can look back on it too. Like I look at some of the first pieces that I wrote and, and I look at them and go, oh yeah, my flute player needs to breathe. They can't play all of that. And, you know, uh, and, and so uh, I've tried to, as, as I grew, that's one of the things that really stuck with me is the reality of the instrument. Um, if, if it's not going to be performed live, it's probably not that big of a deal in a film, but I still like to have it right. I, I like to be able to listen back and know that that could be performed if I wanted it to be. You're right. And and I think plus you have to think about the fact that I think uh, the way that people play instruments is part of the realism that you attach to it. Mm -hmm. So the, cl the closer that you actually mimic how that I mean, if you're playing a, a cello piece on a keyboard, I mean, you could go crazy and, and play it all kinds of different ways or even on a guitar. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter. But the way you approach those instruments, are different. so if your goal is to make that instrument sound real then you want to know how the musician that plays that instrument plays so that when you're actually playing it on your keyboard or your guitar or whatever instrument it is that you have synthesized, 
to actually come as close to the, to that. To it, I, it, to me, I think it kind of enforces the reality of, of what you're trying to sound like. I would absolutely agree with that. I, I started, uh, you know, it's very common for me to take a pad that's a, like a 60 piece string orchestra or string section and uh, and then use that. But then I started underlaying that with a couple of individual soloists because your entire string section is not going to start and stop every note at exactly the same time with the exact same amount of smoothness or vibrato. So I started adding in a couple of uh, single players to give it a little bit more of a realistic uh, human sound. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think that's, I think, I think layering, I mean, layering is something that I've been doing for the past, I don't know, four years or so, three or four years and more. I mean, uh, it seems like the longer I do this, the more I layer and some of it is, and I mean, now I've even gotten to the point where I layer some things that it, that aren't even heard. They're just felt, you know, just to add to the, to the feel of it. But, but yeah, I think that, uh, I, I think my, you know, I, I agree with that completely because, you know, you can, you can, you know, sit there and play, uh, say you've got, a you know, some software that'll do 130 strings, uh, and you sit there and you play it and it sounds great and everything else. But then you're like, well, how could I, you know, that sounds really good, but in, but at the end of the day, it's still software. What can I do to enhance the sound and, and maybe make it, make it sound, you know, even more real for me, even since I know everybody likes to, uh, you know, make sure that they're, uh, you know, all their MIDI notes are perfect on time and everything else. I weave in and out of that. So, I mean, some, sometimes, sometimes I do, especially when it comes to percussive things, I do want the instruments to be, you know, exactly on the note that they should be on. Or if you're doing something like an ostinato or something, but, uh, but you know, if, if, if you're playing an instrument, for example, I go back to the cello, if you're playing a cello or you're playing a piano or violin or whatever, I don't want it to be perfect because if it is perfect, then you lose the human element of it. So I get to the point where I play it as perfectly as I can, but then I never correct it. And so then I think, I think that kind of adds to that whole realism feel. Oh, absolutely. Taking out the digital perfection and playing like a human being definitely makes a big difference in it. And it doesn't have to be, you know, anything that's even noticeable. It can just be felt. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with that. And I think it's, I think, you know, it's cool that you say that because I think as composers, we're always looking for little things that we can do to actually, you know, to actually make our music sound better. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I mean, I think that, I think that after a while, I mean, we never stop learning about, you know, emotions and scenes and things like that. But I think after a while, I mean, once you've been doing it as long as you and I, you got a pretty good feel for that part of it. Like the, like the normal, composing part of it I, I mean i know for me at least i mean i feel like i've got for me when i'm working on a scene i'll know when the composing is really starting to feel right because all of a sudden everything just kind of drops in yeah. you know it's like i'm sitting there and i'm working on a piece and you know oh my god i'm trying all these different you know melodies or notes or you know it depends on whether it's you know what kind of tempo it is or what you're trying to accomplish whether i'm starting with 
you know, something that's percussive or something that's melodic or something that's just chordal. And, you know, depending on the scene, you sit there and you spend all this time. But then, you know, all of a sudden everything clicks and you get the feeling and you go, okay, it's just falling into place. This is the way I'm going to go. And then once you have that direction, now you know where you're going to go. I think, at least for me, I mean, I don't know about for you, but at least for me, where the more difficult part comes in is in after you've figured that out and after you, you know, and when you start to put an arrangement for that together, and then you want to know what are the some things that I can do that will really enhance the sound of this? You know, those, all of those little things that, you know, like, like before, you know, like a thing I like to do now is that I've done since uh, a film I worked on uh, recently is that I, I'm starting to take like deep reverb effects and actually turn my channel for some low bass instruments off completely and running them through a pre-fader so they go to the effects before they ever even, you know, they never even come out of the other side of the channel and just and just take all the top frequencies off. And then because the volume isn't that high, it's like you don't really hear it, but you can feel it. Yes. And and you know what I mean? So I'm. it's like I'm always like I learn more about that now, I think, those things than I do about the actual composing process itself. Yeah, I tend to do that too. I think we've just gotten maybe comfortable enough with the composing side of it, or at least once we get to that point within a project where we've where we've hit that that spot you're talking about, uh, where we can start going, okay, now I can experiment a little bit now that I'm over that that initial hurdle. Uh, but I do the same thing. And sometimes I'll do, uh, I'll, I'll send the reverb to a bus and use just the reverb as an individual instrument and not put, but very little of the actual instrument at all. And it really creates an interesting effect. Yeah. And that's basically exactly, we're talking about the same thing. And that's what I really love doing that because when you just hear the reverb and, and in this case, and I was talking about low frequencies, and let's say it's frequencies that come up to, I don't know, like maybe 60 or 80 hertz, and then they just top off and then they kind of disappear. Mm-hmm. Then it's really nice because it adds this because actually the DB level is about the same as the other instruments, but you don't really hear it. You know, you don't hear it at all it, because it's just a, it's just kind of, it's almost like you're putting some fog inside of your music. You know, you're kind of like, mm-hmm. you're just filling it up with fog because you want it to be thicker and fatter and bigger, you know? Exactly. And, you know, you were talking about the perfection of music earlier. Yeah, I think I think it's so expected that because of the production capabilities today, that everything should be exactly on the beat. And I can tell a lot of times when something was not played by people, when it was programmed, not it's not about how good it sounds. It's about the the playability of it. If every single hi-hat sounds exactly the same, then that's not a human hand playing it. And if it yeah. is, I don't I don't want to hear that musician. I want some feel in there. You know, I want a little bit of groove. Um, and if you go back and you listen to the music of the 70s, you listen to bands like King Crimson, they're not exactly 100% together all the time. Sometimes they're a 16th or a 32nd note off from each other. And that, to me, is one of the biggest charms of listening to that music is because you know it was played by people. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think that I think that imperfection creates perfection. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think it always does. And uh, like for me, as I said, I mean, I, I pick and choose the things that wind up being perfect. Uh, the things that wind up being perfect are normally things that are associative with uh, being more in the background. Uh, the things that are imperfect are the things that are more towards the, you know, the front of the music. Right. And so then, and so then it creates, so the stability is created in the background and then uh, the feel is created in the front, mm-hmm. you know? And so, and that's, uh, you know, that's kind of like the, 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 you know, the near and far of it. And then, like I said, you know, the other things are just created just strictly or just things that you feel and you don't hear. And so once you start to put those together, you almost create this whole 3D dimensional paradigm of music that, you, that you're listening to. Well, let's talk about that. I'm really glad that you said that because I think as a composer and, and as an audio engineer, one of the biggest and most important tools that we have that really doesn't get talked about a lot is panning. Yeah, I mean, I think that panning, you know, and, and, and now, you know, the funny thing about panning is, is now, you know, mostly what I will do, because you got to understand, so the films that I work on, uh, a lot of those go to film festivals. Right. And because they go to film festivals, I can tell you right now that a lot of the um, theaters that they could be shown in will have subpar um, sound systems. Yeah. And and I've experienced that myself. Matter of fact, you know, I learned a lesson early on. I worked on this one film and I did all the panning to where it sounded exactly where I thought everybody should be standing, mm-hmm. you know, because I said, I want to make this as real as possible. And then when I got there and I watched the film, it was like, you know, it's like one side of the theater was louder than the other because. Uh, I mean, even with the dialogue and everything else, because they had a crappy sound system. Yes. And I, I learned a lesson and I said, you know, I'll never make that mistake again. I mean, you know, if, if I get to work on a really big budget film, then, you know, then I'm going to do things the way I think this should be done with panning. But but because of the nature of where these films show, you know, I pretty much try to keep everything out of the middle. Um, I go for, you know. And then what happens is, is I've got a 50, a 75, a 80, and about a 90, and a few things that I do mid-side. But for the most part, you know, I try to make sure the music can be heard, the same instruments on both sides, just because I know that they're going to wind up in a theater like that. They're going to wind up in a theater that, unfortunately, that's the byproduct of being a part of film festivals is, is that's out of your control. What I do do though, is that, you know, when on, on one side, I will create kind of a little bit of a scoop version uh, on the master bus on one side. So at least if you do have a sound system and this works really well, that is decent, then you do hear a difference between left and right. Even though let's say the violin is playing on both the left and right side or you know, or, you know, rototoms are playing on both left and right side, then, you know, still there's a different sound just because of the, the EQs different on the other side. But, but unfortunately I'm, I'm kind of strapped by, you know, I'm worried about these substandard sound systems. And so therefore I, I don't really pan the way I'd like to pan. 
Well, and it's tough because that same soundtrack is going to go on a potential DVD release. It's going to be streamed. It's going to the festivals. It may end up on Netflix. And how do you mix for, you know, it, it mixes have to be done for each individual avenue. Well, they do. That's the other thing is, is I have to go back. So, you know, by the time I'm done and once I'm sure that, the, that you know, that the director is happy and the sound guy is happy with the music, I have to go back and remix it all over again. Right. Because now because now I have to mix it to be listened to mm-hmm. instead of instead of a part of a film. And then you're right. Then that's when I take panning into, uh, you know, consideration is, you know, and then I just try to use that rule of thumb of if I can close my eyes and picture, you know, where each instrument is, then that's where I try to pan to. It's almost like, you know, and maybe it's because I've got experience as a live sound engineer, but I almost want to follow the film around and go mix it everywhere it plays so that I get the right, <laughs> you know, the right mix for the room. Yeah. I mean, you know, I do take, I mean, you know, one of the things I've started doing a lot is that I do, um, I do take one um, mixed down clean bus copy and then just bring the volume like so stinking low it can barely be heard and then just compress the hell out of it so that it's just like a stupid amount of compression Mm -hmm. just so that it adds a little bit of grit to it in case it needs to cut through some you know some bad speakers or you know if you're looking if there's smaller speakers and you want to make sure that you have some you know some bass notes in there or whatever but but you know using a little bit of you know parallel compression like that goes a long ways towards and of course if it's on a really good uh stereo then it doesn't matter anyway right i mean right, if it's on yeah. a really good yeah you know the, you didn't no harm no foul because you've got it buried so low that it really doesn't do anything yeah and if people are streaming it on youtube listening through earbuds good luck anyway you know it's it's only going to get yeah. so good yeah that that's that's right yeah i mean there's that automatic uh compression when you upload anything to youtube uh, you know the files are compressed so the audio is going to suffer to an extent just on that alone um it's almost like you have to overplay it so that the compression will put it where you wanted it to be in the first place but if you try to do that you're probably going to distort or burn out somewhere in the in the score yeah 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 you're right it's a tough line yeah it it is it is i mean i am looking forward to the day that you know, I'm looking forward to the day that, you know, I can actually work on a film where they go, you know what, make the sound, you know, we're going to make sure this is on a good 5.1, uh, you know, uh, sound system. And, you know, we're only going to be on, you know, we're going to be on Netflix or Hulu or whatever the case may be. And, you know, or we're going to be out in, you know, just good theaters and so forth. So, you know, so just keep that in mind and then, then I can, I, I, I know how to do it. I just don't get to do it, you know? I actually want to get to the point where I just hear, just give us the stems. Okay. <laughs> you can, yeah. mix, you can yeah. mix it. You can master it. You can do all of that. I'll just write it and export it, and I'll be happy. Yeah. I, I, do, I do like that idea, but I also kind of like the idea. I don't know. I was watching, uh, what's his name? Is it Dead Mouth 5, I think, the, uh, the guy who does the electronic music production and he was actually talking about that. He was saying that, you know, a lot of the guys that he works with when they're done, they'll send their stems out and, you know, their music and then they will actually have them mixed and mastered themselves. You know, he said, but you know, he goes, it's something that I learned how to do. He goes, so he goes, I prefer to just do it myself. 
you know, because I took the time to learn how to do it. I can see that, but I think it, it's just the more to me the the novelty of it of not having to be responsible for any of that to just for once just you know here's everything do what you're going to do with it and uh, and be happy. But I I think that I would probably be so paranoid that they're not uh, doing the right accents that they're not panning it properly that there's no uh, not enough depth. I mean, there's a million things I would sit there and go they're probably not doing that right. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I think probably, I mean, if I could pick and choose that way, I would probably say I would probably like to just, you know, I would probably like to mix it and then send it out to be mastered mm, because yeah. it, because the mastering process is just such a whole other ball of wax. You know, it just really is. Yeah. And a film can have an hour of music in it. And that's a lot of mastering that needs to be done on that much audio. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. So, and I don't want to get away from, I know that, you know, and I don't want to get away from too, that I get so far into production that I forget about how challenging and how much, you know, I mean, when you're composing a film, when, you know, if we kind of digress a little bit and, and talk about the composing again, is that, you know, one of the things that happens for me is that I will work on a scene until all of a sudden I feel something emotionally one mm. way or another. And so, I mean, that's really the, I mean, if it wasn't for that, I, I don't think that I would even be doing it. So I, I think that's the, the biggest thing when you sit there and you labor over ideas and ideas until you finally get to this point that it affects you. And then once it, once it affects you, then you know that, you know, or you hope that it will affect other people who watch it. Oh, absolutely. And and I I want to ask you what your first one was that you recall really feeling that with. For me, it was uh, the first Star Wars movie that came out, which was actually episode four, uh, when Ben Kenobi and Darth Vader are having the fight and they're trying to get to the Falcon. Um, that music that they played, that John wrote with the string section, just swelling up as soon as the lightsaber hits the ground. Uh, that was the first time I went, wow, I really felt something with that music. And I was pretty young. I think what Star Wars came out in what, 75, 70, 78, I think. So I would have been like yeah. six years old. I think it was 77, actually. 77, okay. Yeah. yeah. And so that I was pretty young to to connect that to the, to the score. Do you remember maybe what was one of your uh, first times that you really honed in on that? You know, I think, you know, what's kind of funny is that one of the scenes that really kind of got me was, you know, I, everybody always talks about Psycho. And, of course, they talk about the, uh, you know, the shower scene. Mm -hmm. But for me, one of the pieces of music that really kind of struck me was actually when she had left Arizona and she had the money and she was driving in a car and there was, you know, a, a police car behind her. And of course, you know, Herman had created this, this music that kind of like, it kind of fluttered up and down a little bit. And it had these little momentary, I don't want to say breaks, but almost like, you know, it's almost like a stop and a start again. And I mean, and I thought, God, I could feel like, like I could feel like she was feeling, you know, I could, I could feel the tension of what she was feeling. I go, God, it's just so brilliant. You know, it's just so perfect. I mean, it just, it just like, if you just saw the scene with no music, I don't know that you would have felt really that tension, 
You know, right. I yeah. think it, I think it was the music that really. And so I just thought, oh God, that's just so cool. You know, I really love the way that made me feel how the character felt. Well, see, and the other thing too, like you mentioned earlier, you're talking about whose voice are you following. That scene could have been written as the, the the police officer. It could have been written as her perspective. It could have been the view of somebody standing to the side of the road watching them drive by. And you really have to uh, know how to write for the character and what's going on in the scene so that you're really directing the viewer as to whose story you're following. Yeah, yeah. And that get back, and as we were talking about before, that really gets back to point of view, you know, because... Mm-hmm. Uh, that point of view really defines how you're going to approach that particular scene. Yeah, I agree. And for anyone who just knows the shower scene in that movie, uh, that part of the psycho suite is pretty cool. That just, you know, shrill, repetitive strings. But that entire psycho suite is actually a very beautiful piece of music. Yeah, I mean, there's so much good music inside of there that did so many different things. And and, I mean, of course, he was the master anyway, but... uh, you know, it's, it, that, that music is amazing for that whole soundtrack. Absolutely. Yeah, that was I think that was when film score was really beginning to take shape uh, as opposed to just being filler or background. Um, that's probably around the time I would say things were starting to get more uh, focused. Yeah, yeah, I would say so, too. I would agree with that. Yeah, And then it just obviously took off from there with guys like John Williams coming into the scene and. You know, uh, it's just amazing. But one thing I had this dream that one day a theater will be designed to where there's a a multi-level speaker system in the ceiling and it will actually direct sound to where that sound is on the screen. So like like you were talking about 3D earlier, like a full 3D audio experience where, I mean, you could control it to like an inch of the theater. Yeah, and I actually thought that somebody had done that all ready actually oh. I, I thought it i i thought that i had heard somebody you know maybe i'm wrong but i th- actually i thought that i had heard that somebody had designed a speaker system that was actually behind a very thin screen and so the music was coming from behind the screen oh. in the places that it happened but but i'm i'm not sure maybe that Maybe they were also, you know, full of crap. (laughs) Well, and then, of course, it comes down to the astronomical cost of making that happen and upgrading a theater and that sort of thing. Uh, But I think that would be neat to to really have like a full immersive experience. And uh, but but, you know, panning that out, plotting the sound uh, to go where it needs to go. And then it depends on where you're seated. Yeah. You know what your experience is going to be like. So I don't know. That would be I think it would be an interesting experiment. I don't know in reality, how well that would play out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know either. Yeah. Well, my mind just goes where it goes. I I take no responsibility for what my brain comes up with. Um, So now the last couple of films that you've worked on, what kind of films were they? Well, I'm glad you asked about that. So I actually had said a last. um, So I had mentioned Planet George, which was a comedy, uh, which was a feature length. And that was actually a, a pretty darn good film. And, uh, that's actually they're looking for distribution for that right now. Oh, um, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, I worked on a short for uh, Rick Gutierrez that's called Stay. Oh yeah, Rick's a good guy. Yeah, yeah, and, and so that's that's kind of a it's a kind of a I want I want to say psychological thriller, but but maybe not. It's it's kind of like it's got a little bit of voodoo in it and. 
it's got a little bit of love in it and then it's got some tension in it and then some bad mojo, you mm-hmm. know, so that it's kind of, so that was really interesting to work on. Uh, and I, I'll, then I worked with Sheila Patterson on, uh, a short that she's going to be showing in LA, actually the LA film festival. Mm-hmm. And that's called love drug. And she, she was quite young, but she's like, I think she's going to make a lot of noise. Like I really do. I mean, you know, I just think she's going to make a lot of noise in the industry. But that was a psychological thriller, and and that was uh, very interesting. The music is, she's a director who likes the the idea of the sound of the music more than music itself. And mm. so I, I kind of learned some things working with her on that because, you know, she had a complete different idea about how things should be. And so that, but that was, uh, so I'm, I'm, I've, I, I mean, I've either wrapped that up or I have one more small piece on that. And so, and then I worked with, uh, Jamie Rivera on a horror called, uh, finally you, which I'm very proud of that soundtrack. I think that it was really, um, it kind of like if you took, maybe if you took Friday the 13th and basic instinct and kind of put those together, that's what that soundtrack sounds like. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, and with a little bit of modern flair. And Jamie was, Jamie, it's a very unique film, and I know Jamie's very proud of it as well. And and so that's going to be showing, it's going to be premiering here local soon, and then he's going to ship that off to some festivals. Uh, so that's the, the last ones that I worked on. And then right now I'm working on a feature-length film um, that's uh, I'm working on too. And uh, one is by, I don't know if you know, uh, Kevin Phipps. Oh, yeah. Who, yeah, so Kevin's making a, a feature horror right now um, called, uh, um, it's the uh, Doctor uh, Doctor Seville Horror Show. And uh, that's actually quite interesting because it's like three stories that are separate that are going to have a wraparound. Oh, and nice. So, yeah, so it, it's very interesting to work on. I worked uh, with Kevin before on another film called my secret war mm-hmm. and uh kevin's a really really talented uh director as well and uh you know i mean kevin is a real kevin is a different cat because he's almost like the guy that you feel like that he was maybe directing films in hollywood for a long time and then maybe he just moved here or something you know or he ran away <laughs> right, or something yeah. right because kevin is just he's he's really has that kind of a feel for making movies you know he really does uh and then i'm working on another one right now at the same time i'm about halfway through i'm hoping that it'll be finalized by middle of march um and that's for feature also uh quite a different the film i think was finished about five years ago four or five years ago and it's called endless flight and it's uh actually directed by um a friend of mine everett scott ortiz who uh, lives in new mexico uh produced by uh, laura braga and it's actually a film about uh six survivors of a plane crash so you know if you could picture a uh actual commercial uh, flight and there's a crash and everybody is on board is killed except for these six people. And then they have a lot to kind of come to grips with after it. 
mm-hmm. because, you know, there's just, I mean, if you can imagine, there's just so many different kinds of emotions and things that you would have to go through from that, whether it's feeling guilty because you're one who actually was alive or, you know, actually feeling, you know, maybe a bit selfish because you wanted to be alive or, you know, and then feeling bad for, you know, the people that you were sitting beside that you didn't know that wound up dying. And that. so, so it's kind of about the process that they go through uh, trying to deal with and then a self-discovery that they make about themselves because of that. So, so that's the two films that I'm working on right now in this moment. That's very, I, I really like that uh, concept. I think that there is so much that you can do from an emotional aspect with those characters. And obviously that just brings you all kinds of opportunities as a composer, but do you, when you find that the actors are giving you a lot, do you tend to lay back a little bit on the music and let their their performance shine through? Or do you like to really enhance it with uh, with something strong? Well, you know, actually it's funny because I think a lot of times um, a director will have a style and then I kind of go with that style because mm-hmm. I, you know, I would say 50% of the time, I kind of actually think that a scene should be different than what a director thinks it should be. Yeah. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, um, I really want to, you know, I really want to kind of explore the idea of what it is that they're looking for and, and try to accommodate that, you know, and everybody has a, you know, a different idea too about, you know, for example, Kevin, I'd miss, I, I had mentioned Kevin and, Kevin really is, he really likes uh, minimalism, you know, and he's a mentalist. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not a mentalist. <laughs> he's a, a minimalist. A minimalist, yeah. And, yeah. But, you know, within that, though, he likes to let people who work with him, you know, explore their own creativity. So I'm not saying that he's a person who says, oh, it just has to be minimal. That's the way it is. Because that's not the way he is at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a he's a very open person and he tries to allow everybody, whether it's actors or, you know, composers or anyone, the idea to express themselves with their own creativity. But he certainly has a concept and an idea of kind of like the way he likes, for example, like the way he likes music to affect his films. And he, he and I, it's one of the reasons he and I get along so well, because I, I like working with people who, you know, have an idea and then they, they kind of develop a style within themselves. Even if they don't know it, they develop a style within themselves. So the second and third and fourth time you work with these people, as you go around, you kind of know what to expect and, and it kind of makes the job a little bit easier, you know? Oh, absolutely. And it just gets better the more projects you do together. The challenge then becomes not getting stale and just staying within those confines of what you've developed and not ever branching out. Yeah, I mean, I have a, you know, that's a good, that's a very good statement. Uh, I have a guy that I work with named Rustin Odom, who's a filmmaker here in town, and uh, he's really good at sci-fi. And the thing is, is with Rustin is he always has an idea of, he may not have an idea of what, you know, he, he doesn't know exactly what music he wants because he doesn't know musical instruments or that sort of thing. But he has a very real idea of kind of like um, like what kind of a feel and tone and that kind of thing. And it is always kind of a building thing, you know, when he and I work on something. So we kind of build that beginning uh, afresh and, you know, until we kind of get it. And then once you get it kind of clicked in, then 
it makes going the rest of the film so easy, you know, and uh, I like working with people like that. Well, and the nice thing, too, is that when you start your next project, you're not starting with any uncertainty. You know, you you might be uncertain about how the project itself is going to go, but that's just the confines of the project. You're comfortable working with that director because you've been through the growing pains already, at least the majority of them. You know, you're right about that. I mean, it's uh, creating that, establishing that first line of communication, because since most directors are not musicians, they each have their own language. That's one of the things I learned getting into this business. I didn't realize I thought that, you know, there would be like this um, dictionary of these standard acronyms that everyone would use. Mm -hmm. And what I found out is it's not that way at all. Yeah. You know, every director has his own language that he talks with. It's up to you as a composer to actually find, um, you know, to find out um, the trends. It's almost like being a translator, you know, where it's almost like you, you have to translate that language into something that you can identify with. And then once you do that, now all of a sudden, then, you know, now you can make the music for that for that person. Well, right. And you have to be part psychologist to bring some of that out sometimes because they won't necessarily know how to express what it is that they're wanting. And so you have to play 20 questions and you have to get in their head and try and figure out how to flesh out what it is that they mean so that you can start learning to work together. Yeah, yeah, there, there's a there's there's some of that. And then, you know, there's also some of the. Uh, you know, I think that I find that most of the time, the first time through, um, you know, it's like kind of like the first time you talk about a scene that maybe you don't quite get the answers you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And you almost have to go back and revisit it again. Like, I, I don't I don't ever think that scenes and films are ever about one conversation, you know, or one evening of conversation. Right. They turn into one long evening of conversation, uh, perhaps maybe another evening of long conversation, who knows? And then as you go along, it turns into, you know, conversation back and forth over and over again, because the, it kind of grows a little better, or as you said, maybe, and maybe that's, you know, maybe I'm just ineffective on, on that psychologist pointing, getting that exactly out of them. But I, I think that I, but you know, what I think, I know, I don't know, you know, I kind of figure (laughs) out as I go. So, and you'll find out when you start submitting music and they're like, uh, yeah, that's what I wanted. Or, um, no, you really missed the point, (laughs) you know, but, but you have to realize too, as, as a film composer, if you don't have a good solid understanding of the film, you can completely change the entire film. I realized when I was working on a student films, like 10 plus years ago, that uh, when I, I wasn't able to spot the film with the director, so he sent it to me and I watched it and he goes, well, give me a call tonight and let me know what you thought. So I'm watching this film and I couldn't tell what the film was about and I couldn't tell what style of film it, it even was. And I realized at that point, within minutes, I could make that film a comedy, a drama or a horror just because the film itself didn't really speak enough volume and I had the ability to change the entire face of that film with music. Yeah, and that's a pretty amazing thing. I mean, I can't say that I've worked on a film that that was quite that wide open. I have worked on some films that, you know, are, are somewhat wide open, um, as you say. But 
I mean, you're right. It's like every, and, and I've actually done that where I've actually like guessed a, guessed a scene wrong from the standpoint of, uh, you know, what, what they were actually looking for. And they were looking for something that was, you know, diametrically opposed to that. And, and you're right. You run into that. I mean, it's just like, and, and because again, it gets back kind of like to those elements we talked about, right? It's like feel point of view, tempo, you know, all of those things. Cause I have some, you know, basic rules as I'm sure you've created your basic rules as you went along with. And, you know, I try to, you know, apply those basic rules in my thinking. And, you know, for example, if a, if a, if a scene is, is, you know, kind of lacking in energy, um, you know, then I, I try to up the tempo a little bit, you know, because, you know, you know, so to actually give it energy or if I want, you know, to shorten the scene, if I want the scene to be longer, let's say, you know, they've got a scene that's a minute or a minute and a half, and I want it to seem like it's, you know, three minutes long so that the audience feels that way, then I'll just really slow the tempo of the music way down. Right. And all of a sudden it makes that scene seem longer. You know, I mean, all of those little things that we kind of develop as composers that are our own little things we have, but then you just wind up, you know, maybe not being, you know, uh, cohesive with the director. And that's why you got to continue to have that conversation back and forth. Right. And, you know, I'm really glad that we're having this conversation because it reminded me of a couple of other things like learning how to read the actors and decide, uh, you know, the actor I don't really think is giving enough to push this scene. I think we need to drive the music a little bit, not in tempo necessarily, but just in pulse or, or in, not pulse, but uh, like in instrumentation or something. And then you contact the director. Hey, can we revisit the scene really quick and have that dialogue? And because they might not have noticed it either. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that's and, and actually, you know, actually, I could say, you know, one of the things about what, um, you know, the directors that I work with, because I've established, you know, a rapport with them is, you know, one of the cool parts about it is, is they actually asked me about their film. Like, mm -hmm. you know, before I'm even doing music, like they said, well, how do you like, what do you think? And I, I will like, I will just be honest. I, I have that relationship with them and I can go, you know, you know, I really thought that scene, like, you know, it just didn't have the, you know, the ending I was looking for, mm -hmm. or, you know, you went on, maybe I thought you went on too long for this or what. So, I mean, for me, I'm lucky as a composer that way, because the directors I work with, actually will listen to my input and they solicit my input on, you know, because it's not a fully edited film yet. You know, right. I see it when it, I see it when it's in its early stage. So I get to make comments that kind of helps me because then they kind of get, you know, they go, you know, I was kind of thinking about that a little bit myself. Mm -hmm. So, and then they go back and they kind of recut the thing or whatever, you know? So, so that, that kind of helps me from that standpoint. Well, and that helps really build that relationship for two reasons. One, they know that you're seeing those things, that you're picking up on that, which means that you're really focused on their film, paying attention, and you have the skills. And two, they know that you're not afraid to open up that dialogue and say, hey, I think something's not right here. Let's make sure everything's okay before we can go forward. I want this film to be the best it can be for me and for you and for everyone. Yeah, they really do. And, you know, and I actually I actually kind of changed my whole idea about, you know, composing for films and, and even more so recently. And the fact that, 
you know, I, I was doing so many for a while and I think I've done, I don't know, I think I've done like 30 of them now or something. I, I, I lost track on how many I've done. And, mm-hmm. But anyway, I was, I was so concerned with, I mean, I was obviously learning and trying to do the best job that I could, but then I also, you know, I was so concerned about just trying to make it the living that I was looking for to be that, you know, I was thinking about the money a lot. Mm-hmm. And, so I just got to the point where I said, you know, I, I just don't like that anymore because it's not moving the needle for me, you know. And so and so I kind of revisited that and turned around and said, you know, I'm not going to think as much about the 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 money anymore. I want to think about uh, the opportunity to work with people who really, really, really like are looking to be at the beyond the top of their game, mm-hmm. you know, people who are, uh, who are really quality and, and who really have that drive, drive and desire to be as, you know, as good as they can possibly be and are talented. And I feel like in the last, you know, few movies that I've worked on and in the movies going forward, I feel like it, that's really starting to pay off for me from, you know, my own personal level. Well, sure. And I think that it's, it can be, um, it could be depressing when you're trying to turn your art into a business and no matter how many compliments you get, no matter how many people are coming to you for work, uh, the money's not there and you you can run the risk of really starting to hate what you're doing because it's not sh- coming to fruition the way that you want it to. And that's a hard thing to balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. And the other side, I mean, it's two sides of that or two pieces of that too. You know, the other piece is when you're, working on a film and you feel like maybe you care about it more than than they do and and that's i mean when you get to that point man that's a really bad feeling like i i really hate that feeling yeah i i think that's probably the worst thing i experienced in in all the the projects that i've worked on is that and when you feel like you're carrying it and the director's not returning your calls or they're just kind of blowing off your feedback on the scenes like you kind of feel like, why am I putting anything into this? Why, why do I still care about this film? What is it about it or about me that keeps driving me to do it? Yeah. I mean, or even when you get, and for me, you know, the big one too, is that when you're, well, as you're working on a film and as they're cutting it and editing it, mm-hmm. and then you're getting pieces of it back and then you're looking at these pieces and you're going, you know, you know, what the hell are they doing? You know, I mean, it's like, what, what, are, what are they doing? Uh, you know, it's like, I, you know, and you feel like, I don't know. I mean, you could tell that the, the, you know, the work's not there or whatever, you know, and you go, they, they didn't really put the, you know, so now I care more about their film than, than, than they do. And it's like, if I care more about the film than they did, and th- that's bad news. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And it's interesting now that you say that it's just something else just occurred to me. What I used to get would be like a rough cut of the pictures so I could at least get an idea and start developing themes. Uh, but I wouldn't actually start working on the final film until they had locked picture and there was there really was no more editing other than, you know, like visual effects and, and sound design and cleanup. Uh, are you working on projects before they're locked? Oh, yeah, I, I am just to establish I get involved as early as I possibly can, because mm-hmm. what happens is and, and understand that everything that I'm doing early is rough cuts, right? They're all rough cuts. So I'm not doing any kind of uh, music that's going to be locked to uh, exact timing or anything like that, because there's there's no point in that, you know, I yeah, I, 
I do take scenes and, and kind of do some timing. I mean, I kind of lock it in a little bit, but I mean, I've been doing it so long that, you know, it's not that hard for me to do. Uh, but I, but I do it with the understanding that, you know, that, um, it's, it's gonna change, you know what I mean? It's, it's gonna change. And, and so that way, if I get, if I get an idea early and I can get some upfront work done, we could establish the tone and what they want some of the scenes to feel like and sound like that by the time I get locked at it, then it makes my job a lot easier. Absolutely. Okay. That's kind of what I thought you did. Cause I, I would do that too. I would do some sketching with the rough cut, but I wouldn't really, you know, I, I might come up with a couple of character themes or, or overall themes that I really liked, but yeah, nothing was set in stone until I had something to actually sync it to. Um, the other, the other thing that I was going to ask you about, uh, as far as the spotting session goes, that I think is an important thing because I had a situation that caused me to realize it was important was to also talk about the visual effects that are going to be added to the film, because that can change the way that you score it. Yeah. I mean, it, it can, I mean, I, I think that we, and not just visual effects, but also sound effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes there's some sound effect, like we'll have a scene and, and there'll be something that's going, you know, that, that I don't necessarily even see. And, and I, I know when I was working with Rustin on a scene, the guy I was talking about before, and he was saying, Oh, well, when you get in here, cause I was saying, what are we going to do? You know, we're doing this and that blah, 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 what music. And then he goes, Oh, well, right here, you know, don't, don't worry about it really too much. Cause the, you know, there's going to be this big loud something or another, blah, blah, blah. And this is going to happen. And I go, Oh, Okay. So that's, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of tells me, and, and you're right. It's the same thing with, with, cause they, you know, they don't, a lot of, I don't know how it is with you, but for me, um, depending on what kind of movie it is, but you know, for example, if it's sci-fi, then there's a lot of green screens in there, Yes, you know, when I'm looking at it. And so, you know, and so for me, what I will do is I will, I usually ask every time I see a green screen, okay, What's in the green, man? You know, I, I really need to know, you know? Yeah, I think the most common question I used to ask was, who's covering that? Is it the sound yeah. designer? Is it me? Do I need to write around it? And something like a big explosion, you may want to leave a little bit of breathing room in the music to really let the explosion play out and then start the music, or you might want to start the music as the explosion's playing out. Those are conversations that need to be had in that spotting session so that you really know what where you're covering and where you're not. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and we, you know, and it is, I do try to find out all of those things. I mean, I have a spreadsheet that I use for cues, you know, and I create mm-hmm. cues of every scene and I try to, you know, have a whole note section there that that's outside of the other things. Like, you know, I've got, you know, a column for point of view, a column for purpose, column for tempo, blah, blah, blah. But then I do have a note section because sometimes I do, you know, want to know that something like that's happening and and sometimes you know it leads to the conversation about it not just in explosions but sometimes with other things where sometimes filmmakers feel like there should be music in pieces and you know on a scene and you go you know what i don't really think music belongs here at all right you know and then, yeah. and then you have that conversation yeah and then is it a hard stop does it fade out is it a short fade a long fade do we need to carry it along till the sun sets you know there's so many little things but I'll tell you why I came across that in, in my own situation. I was scoring a vampire film and there's this point where the sun is out and the vampire is caught outside. He's trying to get away. He's got a hoodie on. So, you know, he's, he's trying to protect his skin as much as possible. 
and he reaches his hand out and I thought, okay, well, the sun's burning him and that's what his problem is because it was no visual effect yet. It was just him holding his hand up. And of course, his hand is perfectly intact because they haven't added anything. And so I scored it with a, a sort of a, a sizzly feel to it because I thought it was the sun scorching his hand. Turns out he got shot. And that's what his problem was. And I'm like, well, I would have scored it completely differently. If- <laughs> so yeah. there you, that's why those conversations are so important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is it is important to think about those. Uh, you know, we're we're the. I mean, I know that filmmakers think about details, but certainly composers are almost anal in the way that they think about details on things. I mean, I even think I don't know how you are, but I even when I was working on Finally You, which was the horror film. I mean, I spent a lot of times when it, there's a lot of uh, live action fighting that goes on in that film. So uh-huh. it's like a, a like almost uh, not martial arts, but certainly it's a lot of uh, a lot of high action that goes on in this particular film. And I found myself really paying attention to this loft that these people were in and, you know, how one of the walls had, you know, brick and then where the wood was. And then, you know, where were all the lights located and the lamps on the, on the, you know, on the bed stand and, you know, and kind of like what their kit, like the kitchen had this really, like stainless steel kind of feel to the top. And then, you know, the walls were brick or whatever. And I thought, you know, just really, you know, you almost feel like there's, there's this hardcore injection of this, you know, cold feeling that you get about the place. You know, it's like one of those places that you would go to. And if you were like, if a friend had a party or something and you fell asleep, you'd wake up and you'd be really, really cold if it was in the dead of winter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so as, as I was approaching the music, you know, I mean, that stuff was in my mind. And so some of the instrumentation and some of the drops and some of the arrangement itself and some of the ways that I brought things in and out kind of, you know, and probably the average listener won't even know, but but I'll know. Yeah, but it, it's kind of like listening to the bass guitar in a rock band. A lot of times you don't hear what the bass guitar is doing, but if you removed it, that song would be really weird. You know, you would really notice it if it wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's really, you know, I think you just wind up, uh, you know, again, it's all about detail, right? I mean, you can never have, it's almost like, I know some people say, well, you can have too much detail. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I can ever have too much detail, (laughs) you know? Right, yeah. You know, as much detail as you could give me, the better. I think the better my music's going to sound and the better your film's going to look, you know, the more we can think about this stuff, you know, so. Well, sure, because there could be one infinitesimal little thing that changes the direction of what you would do. There could be one tiny little bit of light cracking through one of the bricks that's just a pinpoint on the screen. But to you, that that has a meaning. And now all of a sudden to you, that room is filled with that light and that's how you're going to score it. And I'm very big on room ambience. I, the, the lighting, the camera angles, whether there's like a, a dust in the air, all those things were so important to me in creating the underscore because the underscore is underscoring the scene and the room is so much a part of that scene. You have to talk about it. Yeah, I agree. And and I think that, you know, I agree. I agree. And I think that part of the reason why I get kind of enamored with this whole idea of detail and thinking and and a third dimension of, because I've been working really, really hard on the last, uh, I don't know, the last three or four films that I've done. 
um, and moving forward on, you know, this whole idea of, of, of a new added dimension that, that I've never had before. Maybe the audience doesn't necessarily hear that's just totally different. And I think that's because I, I realized about, uh, I don't know, about a year ago, I started thinking about this because I thought, you know, it's like when you watch a film, you have the music and the sound and the special effects and the color and the visuals and all of these other things. It's like you get so many of these senses, but you know, the one thing you don't get is smell. You don't mm. get the sense of smell and, you know, historic, you can, you could be connected to a piece of history by, by smell and you remember something. And I thought, you know, that's what's really missing. And so, I think with my music, I've got to think about a way to, you know, almost create, you know, a smell inside of the music. You know, I want mm. to create the smell because that's what's missing from the film world is you, you don't smell anything. All you smell is the theater you're watching it in or, or your home when you're watching it on your TV. You know, you don't actually get that. That's the one element that's missing from a film. There is. I want to say it's at the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids thing at Disney where they do a little bit of that. They like pump a scent in at a certain time. I, I know they, they do this. Uh, they, they do blowers under the seat so that it simulates rats. Uh, yeah. But you're right. And I think that you could do something as simple as, let's say it's a, the end of a battle and you see these corpses that are charred and you see kind of the smoke coming off of them. And you do it just like a little bit of a shrill sound underneath all of that. You could almost create an audio version of the, of the uh, olfactory sense. Yeah, I think I think that's it. And so I'm always looking for you're right. And so I'm always looking for some way to try to to add something, you know, yeah. different and, to, you know, just something that, that that's not there before. And and I think a lot of that, you know, I, I don't know, you know, a lot of, after I'd listen to all of these great scores, you know, by all of these, um, you know, really uh, great composers. And as you said, you know, whether it's Herman or John Williams or. Hans Zimmer, Danny Elfman, or it doesn't matter any of these guys, you know, I really, really like, you know, something that kind of brought it all together for me was, uh, you know, Trent Reznor, because Trent Reznor is, you know, I mean, that's, that's nine inch nails. And yeah. so that whole synthesized sound. And so, you know, it's kind of like, it almost touches into the realm of where I started coming into this hat. And so I've really, really been working hard on creating this whole idea of, you know, instrumentation and things that maybe you can't discern and tell what they are. And, and so you make, you know, you create your own hybrid, you know, the, the soundtrack to, I know people either love it or they hate it. The soundtrack to the, the girl with the dragon tattoo, oh, you know, yeah. pe- you know, people either love it or hate it and it's fine. Whatever it, people think of it, I don't care. But the, the reason why I liked it is because it's that classic way that Trent Reznor finds all these different ways to introduce these sounds. It, you know, it's kind of like an injection of all of these different sounds that come into the soundtrack and then just kind of make it different, you know, and, and, you know, and it's real edgy that way. And so I'm, I'm always trying to look for a way to add, you know, some kind of a, different third dimension to the to the score right no i love that and i love that you're still searching for things that you don't you haven't gotten so comfortable with it that you're just like okay here now i'm going to add a cello now i'm going to add this synth now i'm going to add this pad now i'm going to add these strings that that you're still wanting to make everything individual and to make the film the best it can be i mean our job is to enhance the visual and the audio that's what we do 
But I think a lot of times when a director gives us a, a change instruction, they don't necessarily think about everything that change will affect. So if you have to change something that's maybe a tempo, well, that might change three or four other pieces in the score because now changing that one tempo throws the balance of everything else off. And now we have to go and correct that, which is great. But a lot of times they that people tend to think it's a very simple change. All we have to do is this one thing and they don't realize well, that's actually going to be another 35 hours of work. Yeah, I, I actually, I agree with you. And that's why it's, I, I mean, I, ha- I actually have that happen uh, more often than you might think. And that's why everything that I do early is all so scratch and yeah. just, um, just rough cut. I mean, there's no mix to it or anything. I mean, mm-hmm. something may be louder than it should be, uh, maybe a stop is out of place. The timing may not be correct, you know, a little bit, but I did sometimes even I'll just like, I was just working on a scene for, uh, Kevin, as a matter of fact, because I wanted to know if there was a piece of the scene where the music would be appropriate. And I completely skipped the whole first part of the scene. Oh, you know, I, I just skipped the whole for, and I told him I'm just skipping the whole first part of the scene and I'm jumping to here because I need to get your, you know, I need to get your, because, and the reason why I wanted to do that, you know, is because the scene is kind of elongated and, you know, whether I pick it up or down will depend on, on how the feel is there. But I wanted to try to establish the tempo of the elongated scene mm-hmm. and the piece that I wanted to look at was actually much more to difficult to compose than the beginning of it. So I just said, I'm not, I know that I'm going to have an easy time with the beginning. So I'm not going to even work on it. But that also ch- brings up another challenge too, is it's not just the piece that you have in that scene. It's what comes before it, how it blends in or fades out, what comes after it. How does that piece fit in? Not just in that scene, but within the score. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, and, you know, and, you, and I'm glad you said that as well, because another piece to that is not only at the end and the beginning, but also is sometimes as you kind of, uh, as, as you kind of go through the scene and you have like, I, I want to call them, I call them like the, the little leftover pieces or whatever that's in between. Like you may have a scene that say, um, it's going to wind up being the same piece of music, but there might be 15 seconds of the scene where you're really not going to have music or the music that you have is going to be very thin. Right. And so, you know, you got as composers, we have to, that's what I mean. We have to think about all those details is, is because you want it to be smooth. You know, you don't want to just go, well, you know, the music comes up to this point because, you know, that's what the director will say. Well, the music's going to come up to this point and I want you to stop. And we're going to wait right here. And then I want you to start here again. Right. And then it's like, well, but that'll sound like shit, man. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, but you don't, you don't tell them that you just know. So what you do is, is you just, you know, like maybe when the music ends, like you say, you have a, you have some kind of a fade, maybe you leave, uh, you know, I mean, the oldest trick in the book is like to leave a high note going, right. Some mm-hmm. string that's high that you, that, so the music, even though the main parts of the music stopped, there's still a little tiny piece of that, that high note that just goes on. And then as it gets, you know, near where the music's going to start up again, you know, unexpectedly, maybe you either change the note or you have it fade out or whatever. And next thing you know, 
the music's kind of coming back in again, you know, right. but, yeah. but those are those little tricks that we develop. I think either a, by hearing the masters at work or B that we kind of come up with on our own. Mm-hmm. And I, and I love that we're still experimenting, still finding new ways to do things because this could easily get very stale if we didn't. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I think it's always about, and again, I think it's always about trying to find, uh, some new way of, uh, you know, helping a director tell their story and, and finding a new way to, you know, express that yeah. and, you know, being and being able to add to your repertoire, you know, being able to add to your toolbox, uh, whether it's on the composing side or the production side and, you know, trying to do everything that you can to learn. I mean, you know, I do every single thing, I, I mean, I don't just watch, go up and watch composers talk about what they do. I go up and watch filmmakers talk about what they do. Right. You know, famous, famous filmmakers, when you hear these guys, uh, you know, certain guys, certain guys will talk and then, you know, you kind of get it because, you know, I, I think that they're being forthright and forthcoming in what they're talking about when they make their films. And then other guys will talk and then you go, I think he just liked to hear himself talk. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, you don't really learn anything, you know? Right. Well, I could talk to you about this for hours and I know you could too. Uh, but I do have one more question for you in, in thinking about, you know, how, and we've been doing this for a long time and, and things have changed a little bit, but how would you recommend to people to go about initiating? If you want to get into this game, You've got to meet people. You've got to get out there and you've got to make connections because no one's going to have you work on their project if they don't have some level of interest in you or you've, you know, shown them that, hey, I think I, you know, I would be a good person to work with. I've got some skills. Uh, What would you recommend to people if they were getting started now? Well, I think, you know, the first thing that you got to do, you got to realize is that you got to go out and cut your teeth. And so, you know, I, 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 whether you want to do it online or, whether you want to go to, you know, your local, you know, find your local, um, you know, independent, uh, filmmakers, you know, their, their organizations or whatever, and find people who are doing like here, for example, in Arizona in Phoenix, they do a lot of 48 hour film challenges. Oh well, God, do they, you know? <laughs> yeah, they do. So, so a lot of the people, you know, some of the people who do them are, you know, been making films for a long time, but mm-hmm. then people who just start out making films, you know, do a lot of those. And so what you want to do is you want to go find somebody in the beginning who's also just getting started like you, that's a filmmaker. Right. So then you just want to go, you know, kind of attach yourself to them and then go, you know what, dude, I I want to get into this. I don't know anybody. I see you're kind of getting started. You know, how would you like, you know, I want to do some music for film. You know, could I do the music for your film? And, you know, next thing you know, you do that and, you know, a year has gone by and next thing you don't, maybe you've done six or eight films or something, Mm -hmm. you know, in in the 48 hour film challenge. Right. And then hopefully that gets you, you know, at least enough of a, you know, enough of a name that you can now, if your friends kind of their level rises, then you rise together. Um, if your level goes up and theirs don't, then you find the people at the next level. And right. you, and eventually you're going to do this so long. If you get good enough at it, um, people are going to look for you. Then, you know, 
then then that's kind of what you did. Sure. And, and word of mouth is big, too. But I would I would agree with everything that you said, but I would add a couple things to it. Uh, for one, I think that before you even approach other people to work on their films, especially on a 48 hour film project, because those you have to learn to write and mix fairly quickly. Uh, there's a lot of changes that happens and you find out 20 minutes after the piece was due. Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you, we changed the scene on set. And you're like, oh, well, I have to write something really quick, which means I have to mix it and, and record it really quick. Um, but before you even do that, I would say find some film scoring contests where they give you a piece of video and you write music to it. And don't worry about the contest. Just take that video and practice with it learn how to write uh, the tempos, learn how to write so that when you have accents that need to hit a visual, that they hit that visual and you're not just stuck on a, well, my beats a hundred beats a minute at four, four. So that's what it is. I hope it works. You know, like you really have to learn how to score a scene. So I would say, try that a little bit first, find out if you're really interested in, in doing it, if that's fun for you. And if it is, then by all means, pursue it. If you don't like that part, that's the whole business right there. You know, that's everything. Yeah. You know what? I, I didn't think about it from that, from that stage before that. I mean, I, I think if you're, if you're saying from ground zero and you, you've never even practiced it or anything, I would agree for, with that. As a matter of fact, I think that uh, one of the things that I did early when I was trying to get and I, what I did is I went up to, um, and I forget the website now, but there's a website with all of the old, um, like black and white silent films and, mm. and, and stuff. And so they are um, freely distributed. I think it's like archive.org or archive.com or something like that. But anyway, I downloaded some of those, like the old silent version of Phantom of the Opera and some of those other ones and some of those movies and then just turned off because, you know, they have like organ music playing. Right, there. yeah. And, and I just turned off the sound completely and sat there and just started working with ideas about how I would score this thing, mm -hmm. you know? And so I actually had real scenes to kind of think about it and, and to score from. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're, you obviously can't go to a 48 hour film challenge if you haven't at least uh, got an idea of how you're going to approach your craft. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, you definitely want to do that. So, and you're right. There's a lot of online film challenges and there's places like, you know, stage 32 that has a lot of people that are looking to do um, films that don't have money mm -hmm. that are also, they're not 48 hour film challenges, but they are films that have zero budget. And you'll see right there, it'll say composer unpaid, you know, actor unpaid. I mean, they've got all of that stuff listed right there. And, you know, as a matter of fact, early on, I think I did, what did I do? I think I did, three projects off of there, I think early on, on stage 32, because I just need to get my feet wet. Yeah. Well, and that's, and, and to be fair to you, Bruce, I was not very clear in my question. In my mind, I was thinking like, once you're ready to go, how do you start networking? But as you were saying it, I started thinking about taking a step even further back and saying, oh, you know, before that, here's what you should do. So no, you answered the question beautifully. Uh, I, and I think that you bring up some really valid points and it's great that there are resources out there I don't know. How do you feel about this? I would not start with films you're familiar with, because I think if you do that, you're going to automatically, subconsciously at least, start scoring them the way that you know they're already scored. 
And I think it's better to take a piece of film you've never seen, you're not very familiar with at all, and say, okay, what would I do with this? This is really a blank slate. Yeah, I think that's an excellent idea. I think you could you could do that with some. And I've had people ask me that before in some of the Facebook groups and stuff like, you know, where are some places I can go to get, you know, things to score to and everything. And mm-hmm. I think that's an excellent idea. I think the only reason why the silent films work maybe is because that music is goofy. Right. I oh, mean, yeah. all the mu- all the music to the silent films is like if you ever watch Phantom of the Opera, like there's a scene where he's being like really scary and horrible and they have like some happy music going on in the background <laughs> well, you know it's almost it's, like they said okay you're going to go out there and you're going to perform live with this film uh the film's an hour and a half good luck just yeah play whatever. exactly <laughs> exactly know? exactly but yeah i think that's a i think that's a great idea you know is to go up and maybe uh you know actually do that to find some and find some stuff it doesn't matter where right i mean youtube or oh yeah Vimeo or anywhere i mean you could find so many different scenes and then you know wind up you know just but you're right i would say shut the shut the sound off you've never seen the film and you know if there's music there i mean once you hear the music it's already in your head yeah so you know almost better just shut the sound off even if you just pretend you know you know try to you know turn on the uh, closed caption Mm -hmm. and read read what the actors are saying and then, you know, go back and then try to score to it, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then for the next level of that, I would say then that's when you want to start finding films that uh, don't have any music like the contest pieces, because you want to get the inflection of the dialogue. You want to understand the emotion and start learning how to read that so that you know whether to play heavier or back off. Um, but I think those are great starting points. And then, like you said, on the networking side, that's exactly how I did it. Uh, I really met the Phoenix independent filmmakers through uh, through a 48 hour film challenge that I signed up for. I didn't have a team. I just went to a meeting and uh, I met Tamara McDaniel and she goes, oh, you're a composer. You're on my team. I'm like, all right, <laughs> great. <laughs> you know, and yeah, then, then yeah. I started doing every film challenge because we entered every film challenge. I would say the only thing to those people is just to be a little bit careful, because when you and I started doing it or whatever, I think people had were much more honest about that. And, and so now, unfortunately, I have actually seen where two, two different situations. One is, is where, you know, they say, well, you know, if you want to enter this challenge, then it's going to cost you $10. Right. right, Yeah. For you to score. Mm -hmm. If you're scoring music for somebody, uh, don't pay them $10 to score music for. Okay. That's, that's just, and then the other is, is where they go, you know, well, you're going to, you know, this, there's this competition, you're going to get into it. And then when you get into it, the prize that you could win, let's say is, I don't know, let's say something like a, you know, the prize is a $20 gift card for, you know, musician's friend or something or mm-hmm. whatever. But then they say, but, uh, but you agree that, you know, this is complete property of, you know, you know, Jack and Jill productions and, we could sell it or do whatever we want to with it and blah, blah, blah. I mean, chances are you're not going to make, if you're early on, you're not going to make something that they can use anyway. But, you know, some of these people, I mean, they're not very good people and, and they take advantage of, you know, people who make music that way. And right. so you did, you just got to be careful about a little bit of that, you know, that's very true. And, and uh, on a lot of the contests, at least the ones that I worked in Arizona, 
uh, you cannot pay or compensate. That's part of the challenge is that everybody's doing it for free. So also know your rules, know what it is that, uh, that you're getting into. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Bruce, man, it has just been so great talking to you. This is interesting because this is, I mean, you and I have spoken over the net a few times, but this is the first time we've ever spoken. It is. And we, and unfortunately we've got about (laughs) five more hours of stuff to talk (laughs) about. (laughs) Well, and I'm very confident that we will be having another conversation on this show. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me tonight. I think there are some absolutely great pieces of information that you gave. I think very inspirational and uh, really thought-provoking, too, as a composer. I really like your approach, and uh, it's not surprising that so many people are after you to work on their projects. Yeah, well, I appreciate it, too, man. I mean, I think it's just, you know, it's kind of, it also kind of, I mean, anything that we could do to kind of help the... um exposure of all of us together as composers because you know there's just so many things out there now that are you know taking away some of the uh, opportunities for composers and Mm -hmm. and and we're all as we're all trying to fight to you know to climb upward you know we have all of these things falling it's kind of like climbing a ladder and somebody's constantly throwing bricks down at you you know it's like you know it's like they there's all these new technologies and things is so many people that say, Oh, I'll work for free. And, you know, just mention me and all of this stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, new, new pieces of software that, you know, websites that will automatically compose music for you and things like that, all this stuff. So, so it's, it's, it's a difficult challenge. Anything we can all do together to kind of lift each other up, you know? Well, we just took discovery channel down. So <laughs> it kind of yeah, feel like was, we're on fire yeah. now. Yeah, that was that was really important. And I'm glad that that, you know, turned out the way that it did, because I was kind of, you know, I was kind of worried about that for a while. Yeah, I, you know, I was really back and forth on on a couple of uh, points on it. But I think the fact that the thing that bothered me the most was if I understood this right, they wanted to change already signed contracts to change the composer's compensation for things that were already done. Now, if you want to change the rates of somebody that's starting a new contract or a new project, that's up to you. And then it's up to the composer whether they're going to agree to it or not. That's fine. But to say, I know I was paying you X amount per viewing, but I really don't want to do that anymore. So you're just going to accept this lower amount. That's not right. Yeah, I mean, I think I think overall the whole attitude, again, the attitude that they're having as an industry towards this is just, you know, I mean, if, if, if composed and not just composers, but other people in the industry as well, if you don't band together and kind of like let people know that you're not going to, you know, this isn't right. We're not going to let you get away with it. Then it's going to be difficult for composers going forward. Well, yeah. And I'm glad that we squashed this so quickly and so early so that maybe we set the precedence to where this won't be something we'll see a whole lot of. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would say so. I I would say that it's, you know, again, it's just, it's really hard in the industry as it is and, and nobody's making the money that they were making unless you're, you know, unless you're HZ, I mean, right. you're not making the money that you were making. So it, it, it's like it, it's really difficult when this is your vocation to, you know, to have some of those things, you know, kind of uh, happening around you. 
Yeah. Well, it's a, it was a good day for us for sure. And it's a great day that I got to hang out with you and got some insight into your process. And man, I just uh, wish you the best of continued success. Thanks, man. You as well. And I'm sure we'll stay in touch and keep trying to find new ways to do new things. Absolutely. I love it. You have a great night, my friend. All right. You too, buddy. And I'll talk at you later. Sounds good. Yeah, what a great guy and what a great approach to film. I love his attitude. I love his willingness to uh, not just say, you know, I know everything. I'm still learning and I'm still experimenting. Because I think when we stop experimenting is when we kind of die a little bit as artists. And Bruce is definitely uh, alive and kicking. And uh, I I love it. And I'm not surprised that he is in as high demand as he is. But if you're looking for a film score... He's one of those people I would say you should give a call to because uh, he'll he'll give you something really, really great and he'll work with you on it to make sure that it's what you want and uh, maybe even turn you on to some other possibilities that uh, you might not have thought of. So uh, there is Bruce and thank you, Bruce, for coming on the show. Thank you guys for joining me on another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I'll be back with episode number 99 very shortly. Talk to you soon. Bye.